For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Esau's choice. Yeah, to really understand this story tonight, you have to understand a little bit about the whole biblical worldview and how the scriptures view choices. We've been talking about faith, right? For the past several weeks, if you've been with us for our study in Genesis, Genesis, it's the first book in our Bibles. It's, it's the most ancient accounts, the most ancient stories that we have, the most ancient history that we have about the origins of everything. And the Christian worldview holds forth that our world has two dimensions. For one, there's a real physical world that we can see. Some worldviews deny that there is such a thing as the physical. The Bible says, no, the, the physical world is real, you're real, you have real desires, real needs, and you make real choices in that real world. On the other hand, there's also an unseen spiritual dimension, that this world is not just what we see, but there's a God who's really there, who has spoken. He's there and he's not silent. He's spoken in his word. And he, he doesn't just ask us to take that without any evidence at all. He gives evidence. And we've seen some of that evidence in Genesis. We don't have time to go into it tonight. We do have a free book for you if it's your first time here, if you're a skeptical person. That's, that lays out a lot of those lines of evidence. Very persuasive. That God is there. God has spoken through his word. But he is there, according to the Bible. And this world is a, a combination of of the physical world and the spiritual world, and the spiritual world is unseen and it's eternal. This physical world, it is broken for reasons we've seen earlier in Genesis. One day God's going to destroy it and make it all new. The, the spiritual world, very important part of our existence. And every day we make real decisions in this real world. Uh, perhaps some of you are wrestling with decisions right now. And tonight we're going to talk about two different approaches to decision-making. I'm not going to give you a step-by-step -step on how to, how to make decisions. What we're trying to get at is a framework for how to think about making decisions. One way to approach decisions in your life is just to look at what's seen. You think, what, what's right in front of me? What do I feel? What do I think? And make the decision based on that. Another approach advocated in Scripture, though, it still considers what do I feel, what do I see, but it also asks, what does God think about this situation? What are the promises of God? And it takes into consideration these unseen, eternal realities. Two very different approaches. As the Apostle Paul writes later, he says, we walk by faith, not by sight. And so the Christian might make decisions that don't necessarily make, make sense according to just what is seen but through the lens of faith, which sees the unseen realities that will last forever, those decisions start to look a lot better as time rolls on. Maybe not tomorrow or the next day. We're talking 10 years from now, 30 years from now, 300 years from now, you're still going to exist. Your body will have died, but your soul will live on. When you look back at decisions you made in this life, what are you going to think about this? Well, we've been studying the faith of Abraham, and Abraham was a man of faith who made decisions based on God's promises. He didn't just look at what was seen. He looked at the unseen. He looked kind of dumb, probably, to some people, leaving his homeland. God made him a promise. He said, leave your land, and I'm going to give you this great land over here, a thousand miles away. 
I'm going to make you into a great nation, even though you don't have any kids. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to bless you. And through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. God was doing something big through Abraham's descendants. His plan of salvation, we've seen. And he probably looked kind of dumb to some people looking on that didn't really believe or know about that promise. Yet today we look back and we see that was actually a pretty good move on Abraham's part to look at the unseen and not just the seen. Tonight's study marks the end of Abraham's life and then transition to the life of his son Isaac and really to Isaac's kids. It doesn't really say that much about Isaac. He spent a lot of time on his son Jacob and even more on Jacob's kids. But tonight we're going to look at Isaac has two notable sons. One is Jacob, we'll spend on next week. This week we're going to look at his son Esau, though. But before we can get to that, there's three key events that really bring us to the end of Abraham's life and into the life of Isaac that I think are important to summarize. One, in Genesis 23, Abraham's wife, Isaac's mom, Sarah, dies. And when she dies, Abraham has to go to the local Canaanite rulers, and he says, here I am, a stranger and a foreigner among you. Please sell me a piece of land so I can give my wife a proper burial. And so here's the great Abraham. He's been in the promised land for 60 years, and he still does not own a square foot of that land. He's got nowhere even to bury his wife, his beloved wife, in her death. And that's why Hebrews 11.13 can say Abraham and Sarah were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance through the eyes of faith. And they admitted that they were strangers and temporary residents on earth. This is a New Testament passage quoting this verse right here. He says, I'm a stranger and a foreigner among you. He still was. Strangers and temporary residents on earth. If you want to be a a decision maker through the eyes of faith, that's, that's how we need to view ourselves. If you're a Christian, if you receive Christ, then Scripture says you're a citizen of heaven. And on earth... We're just passing through. In fact, this word, admitting they were strangers, that's the Greek word xenos, which is where our fellowship gets our name. And uh, while I really am not a big fan of the name of our church, because <laughs> it sounds so weird, I love the, the concept which says that we're strangers. We're temporary residents here on earth because we see our lives through the lens of faith. Abraham was looking at the unseen, the eternal realities, making decisions based on that. That's why he's got to buy a piece of property in the promised land after living there his whole life. We also see in Genesis 24, Isaac gets married. Abraham, at this point, is 137. Remember, people lived a lot longer back then. He's 137. Isaac is 37. It's time to get married. The dad was supposed to arrange for a bride for his kid. Abraham knew, if I don't do something, he's just going to marry one of these Canaanite women, these non-believers here. And so what does he do? It says he was very old, God had blessed him in every way, and he said to the senior servant in his household, I want you to come here and put your hand under my thigh. (laughs) This is how they made oaths back then, back before the pinky swear. (laughs) He says, I want you to swear, put your hand right here. That's how I know you're serious and you know I'm serious. This would be inappropriate today. 
swear that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, but go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. You're going to make a two-month, 500-mile journey back to where the rest of my relatives live and find one of my nieces or nephews to marry my son. I guess nieces. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Find one of my nieces to marry my son. And so this servant, he makes a 500-mile journey back. He goes to the town where Abraham's family lived. He finds a well, and he hangs out there, because that's where you met your wife back in the Bible. It's truly the ChristianMingle.com of the second millennium B.C. <laughs> Although back then it was JewishMingle.com. <clears throat> this girl walks out. She's beautiful, she's strong, she's carrying one of those pitchers on her head, you know, waters all his camels, she's single, and best of all, she's Isaac's first cousin once removed. (laughs) How perfect. (laughs) And so, you know, he drops down on one knee and asks her that question that every girl has longed to hear. Rebecca, will you marry your first cousin once removed? who lives 500 miles away, you've never met. And she said, of course I will. (laughs) You know, his roommate was hiding in the bushes taking pictures of the whole thing. (laughs) Which used to be called stalking, but now it's romantic, apparently. (laughs) And the very next day, she gets on the camel and rides 500 miles back to meet her husband, Isaac. That would be pretty crazy to go through all that if you're Abraham, if you're just looking at what's seen. But if you take into account the unseen and you're making decisions based on that, it actually makes a lot of sense and it's pretty important. Because Isaac's spiritual life is going to be the most important thing in his life. A third and final thing it narrates in Genesis 25, a final event is the death of Abraham. It says that Abraham lived 175 years And he died at a ripe old age, having lived a long and satisfying life. He was buried in that same plot of land, the one plot of land he owned, by his sons Isaac and Ishmael, came back for the funeral. His grandsons, Jacob and Esau, would have been 15 years old when he died, so he would have met them, he would have gotten to tell them about the promises of God. And here Abraham dies, and at the end of his life, he never owned any land except his own grave. That's all he owned. None of the promised land. And in fact, the moment after he died, he didn't even own that plot of land because he was dead. When you're dead, you can't own things. You go out of this world the same way you came in, with nothing. And so we see the wisdom of Abraham living for the unseen. This this is why Jesus said 2,000 years later, Look, guys, you can't take it with you. When you die, you leave everything. So why don't you lay up treasures in heaven that'll be there when you get there? And this is why Hebrews eleven ten says, Abraham was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. This is the kind of satisfying life you can have when you make decisions based on the unseen realities, based on what God thinks about things. Abraham is looking even better today than he did at his death. But even at his death, he he lived a good, long life at a ripe old age. And that brings us to the family of Isaac. His mom is dead. His dad is dead. He's married. 
Now it's time to talk about his family. And it says in Genesis 25, 19, this is the account of the family of Isaac, the son of Abraham. When Isaac was 40 years old, he married Rebekah. And we talked about that. Isaac pleaded with Yahweh, that's God's name, Yahweh, on behalf of his wife because she was unable to have children. And so we see Isaac's prayer life here right out of the gate. In fact, Isaac, and and it says Yahweh answered Isaac's prayer and Rebekah became pregnant with twins. So she's pregnant with not one but two sons. And you know, Isaac seems really to start out as a man of faith. He's born to Abraham and Sarah through miraculous birth. He's raised and taught about God by Abraham. We saw last week that scene on Mount Moriah. His his quiet submission, his obedience, his trust. Not just of his father, but his heavenly father. You know, Isaac, you don't go through a scene like that and remain unchanged. So we see a pretty remarkable start to his life, including his prayer here. But on the other hand, from this point forward, Isaac has problems. We see a lot of problems with his faith. That's partly, I think, why the scripture doesn't say too much about him. We see passivity. His dad could be passive, but he could still be bold and initiative. Isaac, he's passive. He plays favorites with his sons. We see him operating according not to this, these unseen realities, but more and more according to very temporal this kind of life value system. And that's going to create problems with his kids and in his marriage and in his own life as well. Well, he prays, his wife becomes pregnant, but it says the two children struggle with each other in her womb. There was some kind of thing going on. Rebecca finally went to God to ask him about it, and she said, why is this happening to me? Is this just like normal second trimester stuff here? You know, this, is this something I ate? This isn't in any of my pregnancy books. She's looking at the ultrasound, and the one kid's got the other one in a headlock. He's punching him in the face. Is this normal? And God says, no. He says, the sons in your womb will become two nations. Whoa. From the very beginning, the two will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other, and your older son will serve your younger son. And so God predicts right from the very beginning that that promise that he made to Abraham, a great nation will come from you. That promise went to Isaac. He says that son is not going to go to the older one, the the first twin to come out. It's going to go to the second one, which was unusual. Usually it was the first son. And so God predicts this. I'm sure that Isaac knew this. Abraham probably even knew this. He's still going to live for 15 more years at this point. Watch these boys grow up a little bit. And so we have the promise of God overshadowing the birth of both of these boys. Some people wonder, isn't this unfair to these babies? God's just picking one over the other one. Well, a couple points that have been helpful to me. One, this is not sending one to heaven and one to hell. He's choosing the younger one for a part in his plan. And even the older one, Esau, he's going to become a a, a nation that's going to be in existence for 1,500 years. I mean, that's not that bad. 
I mean, that's, that's still some blessing of God there. So he's not sending one to heaven and another to hell. He doesn't say anything about their eternal destinies. He's also not saying one's going to be really awesome, one's going to be terrible. Now, they both have problems. The older one has more problems. He's worse. But the younger one does too, and God's going to deal with him next week. Also, it's not that God is controlling Esau's choices. Some Christians depict God as this God that controls every one of our choices. No, we're going to see it's not that Esau just wanted to do the right thing and God wouldn't let him. No, he's making his free choices here. And he's dealing with, he's taking responsibility for those choices. He's got to deal with the consequences of those choices. No, when God chooses God chooses according to what Bible, the Bible calls his foreknowledge. He knows the future, and so he makes his choices accordingly. It's a little hard for us to understand, but I mean, imagine if you're a manager who's got to make a hire for your company, and you interview the candidates, and one of the candidates named Bob looks really good, and you decide to hire Bob. You make a choice. Bob's the chosen one. But then you spend all this time training Bob and all this money, and it turns out Bob's a terrible employee. And six months later, finally, you have to fire Bob. Now, if, if you had foreknowledge, you could have just saved yourself the time and hassle and just never hired Bob in the first place. But we don't have foreknowledge. That would have been better for the company. That would have been better for Bob. Well, God has foreknowledge, so Bob would have never hired Bob. God would have never hired Bob. <laughs> i trouble talking tonight. He wouldn't have hired him. In the first place, because of his foreknowledge, he wouldn't have chosen it. And so God's choices are according to his foreknowledge about the direction that both of these boys are going to choose as they grow up. So God picks the younger. When the time came to give birth, Rebecca discovered she did indeed have twins. The first one was very red at birth and covered with thick hair like a fur coat. This little Wookiee pops out. <laughs> and so they name him Esau, which means hairy. <laughs> Very creative. He's real hairy. What do you want to name him? How about Harry? <laughs> Esau, we're going to find out, is a man's man. His hair never leaves him. The other twin, though, was born, and his hand was hanging on to Esau's heel. As Esau comes out, Jacob slides right out with him, hanging on to the heel, and so they named him Jacob, which means heel grabber. <laughs> it could maybe have positive connotations like, I got your back, you know, but it can also be like backstabber, sort of like, you know, get kind of like attacking someone from behind. The picture, though, here is Esau's ahead of Jacob, but Jacob's trying to grab him from behind so that he can be the one ahead. We're going to see he's a schemer. He's a manipulator. Well, as the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter. He was an outdoors man. Again, he's hairy. He's manly. He's outdoors. Every time you see Esau, he's got a weapon in one hand and something dead in the other hand. <laughs> Jacob, on the other hand, had a quiet temperament. He preferred to stay at home in the tents with the rest of the women. If Esau was a man's man, Jacob would have been the opposite of that. 
Isaac loved Esau, the father's boy, because he enjoyed eating the wild game that Esau brought home. So Isaac favors Esau, even though he knew God picked Jacob. Later, Isaac is going to try, try to bypass God's choice of Jacob and send the blessing, the birthright, through Esau. But Rebekah loved Jacob. It doesn't say why. She should have loved both of her sons. Uh, but we see favoritism right here in this family. We see, we see problems. We see the division happening even in the marriage of this family. Well, one day, they're grown men now. Jacob was cooking some stew. Esau arrived home from the wilderness, exhausted and hungry. He had had a bad day. He hadn't gotten to kill anything, and that would make Esau angry if he couldn't kill something. And so Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. The Hebrew is very crude. It's literally, I swallow red stuff, this red stuff. (laughs) I famished. (laughs) I'm not kidding. All right, Jacob replied, but first train me your rights as the firstborn son. <laughs> what, were these, what were these rights? What was this birthright? The birthright included several things. One, a double share of the inheritance. Firstborn son got double everything. That's double the money, double the land, double the livestock, double everything. This would have gone from Esau getting two-thirds of everything at, Jacob, at, at Isaac's death, to Jacob getting two-thirds of everything. A big swing. It would have been leadership in the family. It would have meant that one day, Isaac would begin training Jacob to take over leadership of the family. And Esau would have to go off on his own, and make his own way. In addition to these normal components to the birthright, we also see that in this specific case, God had attached a special rider to that birthright. He had specified a huge role, the central role in God's plan. That through you, all nations will be blessed. God will protect you. He's going to give you this land. He's going to make you a great nation. And so there were very important spiritual realities attached to this birthright. And Jacob here is trying to catch Esau at a weak point and trick him, manipulate him, into giving up that birthright, to selling it to him. Well, look, I'm dying of starvation anyway. What good is my birthright to me now, Esau says. Doesn't really sound like he's dying. He's walking and speaking. But Jacob said, uh-uh-uh. First, you must swear the birthright's mine. Esau's like, whatever. I solemnly swear that I sell all my rights to my firstborn brother Jacob. Now give me the food. So Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew, so he threw some bread in. And Esau ate the meal, got up, and left. And so Esau showed contempt for his birthright, it says. 
Yeah, I mean, what Jacob did here was bad. But what Esau did was a lot worse. A lot worse. This is why the New Testament looks back on this and says, make sure no one is immoral or godless like Esau who traded his birthright as the firstborn son for a single meal. Talk about a bad deal. You mean, this would be as bad as, imagine you come in from a long day of hunting, you're hungry, and you smell I'm making this apple pie. And you're like, oh, give me some of that apple pie. And I'm like, okay, but first you've got to promise you'll give me your soul and your firstborn son. And you're like, whatever, I'm dying anyway. Give me some pie. <laughs> Think about how lightly you're treating something as, as significant as your child, as your soul. That's exactly what Esau does here. And we need to think about this choice. We need to think about Esau's choice. What he got and what he gave up. Because there's a lesson for us here. What he got was soup and some bread. Let's not forget about that. Freshly baked. Where did he give up, though? The birthright. Tons of money. Leadership in the family. The, the special place in God's plan. He gave all that up for a bowl of soup. He got an immediate payoff. His hunger was satisfied. But what did he give up? He gave up a delayed payoff. There would have been plenty of money, prestige down the road, and even greater than that, a role in God's plan. It's an eternal payoff that he gave up for an immediate gratification. He got a few moments of pleasure. That soup was probably quite tasty. But what did he give up for a few moments of pleasure, long-term, eternal joy? What he got was only things that are seen. What he gave up? A lot of things that are seen, and even more things that are unseen. Spiritual blessings he forfeited here for a single bowl of soup. A few more thoughts about this choice. It was under pressure. A lot of the choices we're going to make are under pressure as well. In fact, a lot of the choices I regret most in my life were made under pressure pressure. I think Esau might have chosen differently under ideal laboratory conditions, but that's not where life is lived a lot of the time. We got to make choices in a state of pain, and that pain screams so loudly in our ears. It was dishonest for him to say he's dying of hunger. He just he doesn't seem like a guy dying of hunger. You can even see him kind of lying to himself. Jacob says, sell me your birthright. He's like, well, I mean, what good is my birthright if I'm dead? And so he's lying to himself. He's exaggerating how bad his hunger really is. And he's telling himself a lie so he can go through with what he wants to do anyway. And I wonder if we do that sometimes. I wonder if that's something we might be guilty of. We exaggerate our pain. We lie to ourselves. I'm like, God, this loneliness is unbearable. I just can't stand it a minute longer. I've got to go out. I've got to, I've got to go out and have, have I've got to go get laid. 
That's what I really need. That's really going to make my pain go away. And I just, I won't be able to function until I do that. God, the temptation is overwhelming. It feels so burning. It's going to feel this way forever. What's the use of resisting? It's pointless. I might as well just give in now. We say, God, I just need the money so badly. And how many things have been done that people regret for money? How many things to relieve loneliness? Because of some craving, you do something you regret, possibly for the rest of your life. Esau was dishonest. It was impulsive and autonomous as well. He didn't really think this through. It was made in an, in an instant of time. There was no prayer. There was no counsel. He was listening only to his pain, not thinking at all about the promises of God, which he would have known. This choice also reflects his values and his prior choices that he had made up to this point in his life. Esau was not this guy who was living a life of faith and then he just messed up one time and he's being singled out for one mistake. No, not a guy who was doing well and made one mistake. From everything we can see about his life, he had made a lifetime of choices of disregarding God's will, of not really caring about God's promises, of living for immediate gratification. And now this choice that he made is really pretty consistent with his values, with his character, with choices that he's made up until now. And yet this one, this is really sort of the last straw for Esau. And what I've noticed is that choices this bad usually don't come out of nowhere. When someone makes a horrific decision like this, uh, there's usually a trail of other decisions leading up to that. It's like, you know... You find yourself, you know, getting yourself into a horrible marriage choice. I mean, why did you date that person for so long? Why were you, why were you dating a non-believer for so long? God says Christians should marry Christians. Um, you know, why, why did you download the app to your phone that helps you find people who want to have sex with you right now? What did you think was going to happen when you did that? There's choices that we see all the time. Choices leading to other choices. Hiding the little things that grow to bigger and bigger and bigger things. And then you end up with something like this. This choice ended up being permanent for Esau. And our choices sometimes we'll, we'll find ourselves, but not all this way. Sometimes we find ourselves in a situation where our choice is permanent and irreversible. And a lesson, number one, that I think we can take away from Esau's choice is that no amount of pain is worth trading away your role in God's plan. I mean, immediate payoff, a few moments of pleasure, things that are seen, you're going to regret that. Maybe immediately, definitely later. And you're going to miss out on what God wants to give you. You've got to let that pain drive you closer to God. There's certain things that can only be learned through suffering. And God wants you to draw near to Him in the midst of that pain. Well, life goes on for Esau. First, there's no real apparent consequences to what he just did. In fact, in Genesis 26, we've learned briefly 
At the age of 40, Esau got married. Oh. Who did he marry? Where did he find the girl? Did Isaac get a servant together and send him 500 miles back to his homeland to find a believer for Esau to marry? No. Esau married a couple of Canaanites. Two Hittite wives, it says. Isaac's completely passive in this whole situation. Does nothing to try to lead his son in the right direction on this that we know of. All it tells us is that Esau's wives made life miserable for Isaac and Rebekah. They couldn't stand these girls, and their lives were miserable as a result of it. So he's sort of bitter after the fact, but that's it. That's all Isaac does here. And so Esau's selling his birthright, marrying these non-believers. He's really on a roll here. Quite a guy for the grandson of Abraham. And in Genesis 27, we learn about a fateful day in the life of Isaac's family. It says in verse 1 that one day when Isaac was old, he's 137 now, which means Jacob and Esau are 77 years old. Now that was like middle age for this time because Isaac's going to live to 180, but he's still old, okay? And his sons are middle-aged. He's getting up there. His, his eyesight is starting to fail. He's turning blind by now, Isaac is. And he's really getting the sense that he's going to die even though he's going to live another 43 years. So he called Esau, his older son, and said, My son. Yes, father. I'm an old man now, and I don't know when I may die. Take your bow and a quiver full of arrows. Go out into the open country and kill something for me. Prepare my favorite dish. You know what I like. And bring it here for me to eat. Then I will pronounce the blessing. What was the blessing? This was a legal act, a legal ceremony at the end of dad's life where he officially pronounced the blessing and passed the birthright on, usually, to his older son. And so Isaac calls Esau in and says, it's time for me to pronounce the blessing. On who? On Jacob? Like God said? Now, I'll pronounce the blessing on, that belongs to you, my firstborn son, before I die. He doesn't care what God said. Despite God's prediction that it goes to Jacob, despite Esau selling his birthright, anyway, despite him marrying multiple Canaanite wives and how much of a pain that was to Isaac, he's still determined to plow ahead and try to quickly and secretly bless Esau with the birthright. He's trying to circumvent God. Well, Rebecca, mom, over here, she's got ears everywhere. What Isaac said to his son Esau. And so when Esau left to hunt for wild game, she quickly called in her son Jacob and told him the plan. She said, Go get me two goats. Kill him. Bring him here. We're going to get this blessing for you. This belongs to you. And Jacob's like, but he's going to know it's not me. My brother's hairy. I'm smooth, skinned. And she says, don't worry about it. Just go get the goats. I'll worry about that. And so Jacob went out and got the young goats for his mother from their flocks, certainly. Rebecca took them, and she prepared a delicious meal just the way Isaac liked it. And then 
She took Esau's favorite clothes, which were in the house, and she gave them to her younger son, Jacob. She said, put these on. These are your brothers. She covered Jacob's arms, the tops of his hands, the smooth part of his neck with the skin of the young goats. So Esau is really hairy, like goat hairy. And then she gave Jacob the delicious meal, including the freshly baked bread. And Jacob goes in to take the food to his father. Um, Father, Jacob said. Yes, my son, Isaac answered. Wait, who are you? Are you Esau or Jacob? Jacob's like, uh, Esau, your firstborn, I did as you told me. Here's the wild game. Now sit up and eat it quick so you can give me your blessing. <laughs> How did you find it so quickly, my son? Jacob's like, ugh. Um, Yahweh, your God, put it right there in my path. <laughs> I walked out. The deer was just standing there. I shot it. It's crazy. Isaac, he's blind, but he's not that blind. Come here so I can touch you and make sure you really are Esau. So Jacob comes over and he's like kind of holding out the the goat hair. (laughs) He went closer to his father. Isaac touched him right on the goat hair. Uh, Strange, the voice is Jacob, but the hands are Esau's, Isaac said. But he didn't recognize Jacob because Jacob's hands felt hairy, just like Esau's. And so Isaac prepared, finally, to bless Jacob. Are you really my son Esau, he asked. (laughs) He knows this is binding, legally binding, cannot be revoked. Yes, Jacob replied, (laughs) trying to keep the answers as short as possible. And Isaac said, well, now, my son, bring me the wild game. Let me eat it, and then I'll give you my blessing. So he carries the food over. Jacob took the food to his father. Isaac ate it. He drank the wine that Jacob served him, maybe an extra glass or two. And then Isaac said to Jacob, Please, come a little closer and kiss me, my son. So he's kind of doing like the, you know, kiss. He leans over. He kisses his father. And Jacob went over and kissed him. And when Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he was finally convinced. And he blessed his son. And he said, ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field. That's how I know it's Esau. Feels like a goat. Smells like a field. (laughs) And so he says, my son, from the dew of heaven and the richness of the land. There's the land portion of the blessing. That God had promised Abraham, which went to Isaac, now went to this guy he's blessing. May God always give you abundant harvest of grain and bountiful new wine. May many nations become your servants and may they bow down to you. The promise of a great nation. May you be the master over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. 
All who curse you will be cursed, and all who bless you will be blessed. The very promise of God's blessing from that promise to Abraham, he now passes on to, as it turns out, his son Jacob. Well, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, Jacob hears Esau get back. Almost before Jacob had left his father, Esau returned from his hunt. And Esau prepared a delicious meal, and he brought it to his father. And he walks in all cheerfully, and he says, Sit up, my father, and eat the wild game so you can give me your blessing. This is like the best day of Esau's life. My dad's going to die. I get the money. I got to kill something. Come on. Well, the response he gets is not what he expected. Isaac says, and who are you? It's your son, your firstborn son, Esau. (laughs) And Isaac began to tremble uncontrollably. And he said, then who just served me the wild game? I've already eaten it. And I blessed him just before you came. And yes, that blessing must stand. When Esau heard his father's words, he let out a loud and bitter cry. No! Esau angry! (laughs) My father, what about me? Bless me too! He begged. But Isaac said, your brother was here. He tricked me. He's taken away your blessing. Oh, no wonder his name's Jacob. Now he's cheated me twice. First he took my rights as the firstborn, and now he's stolen my blessing. It's all his fault. What Esau could have said here was, my choices have finally caught up with me. This is my fault. I haven't cared at all about the things of God. God, will you forgive me? I want to go a different direction. That's not what he does. He's blaming other people. He's angry. He says, Dad, haven't you saved even one blessing for me? And Isaac said, I made Jacob your master. I've declared all his brothers will be his servants. That's you. I've guaranteed him an abundance of grain and wine. What's left for me to give you, my son? And Esau pleaded, but do you have only one blessing? Oh, my father, bless me too. And then Esau broke down. And he wept tears of bitterness. From that time on, Esau hated Jacob. And Esau began to scheme. I'll soon be mourning my father's death. And then I will kill my brother Jacob. We don't see a guy who's sorry at all about what he did. He's feeling sorry for himself. And that's about all you can say for Esau. No wonder Hebrews 12 goes on to say, you know that afterward when Esau wanted his father's blessing, he was rejected. It was too late for repentance. It was too late for Isaac to change his mind, even though Esau begged with bitter tears. And so there's a lesson here from the life of Esau. That some choices produce irreversible consequences. That's the way our choices are. They're real. You think about all kinds of of areas of our lives, marriage choices, irreversible consequences, sex choices. I knew a guy who was married, had a kid, 
One uh, weekend, his wife was out of town, and he called up a prostitute. She came over. He slept with her. That was a choice with an irreversible consequence. Lost his marriage, and now he sees his daughter every other weekend. In a single instant of time, we can see our lives ruined by our choices. Our choices are very real. Hurtful words or actions, there's words you can never take back. There's actions you can never take back. Violence you can never take back. Foolish spending or career choices. You see people ruin their lives with six, I I know friends who have six figures in college debt on a, a, a worthless degree. Rejecting Christ would be a decision with permanent irreversible consequences. To say no for Christ, to pay for your sins, that's a choice that you're going to pay for for all of eternity. We need to have a healthy respect for our choices that God has given us. Esau stands as a warning to us all. That's the lesson here. And this is a warning passage. It's negative. And so I just want to end with two points of hope. Two hopeful points for you. It's easy to sit through a a story like this and just feel terrible about choices that you've made, about things you've lost. One point I want to make to you is that choices can also have permanent positive consequences. Maybe it was a choice that got you into the situation that you're in. But there's choices that God wants you to make to lead you out of it, to lead you down the path of healing. We can learn to make choices in our lives that are going to do irreversible good in our lives. You think about a, a godly marriage choice? That's something you can reap the blessings of for the rest of your life. It can be a fountain of blessing. I can't tell you how much I've gotten to enjoy my marriage. Making a choice according to God's priorities. Kind words, words to build people up when they're at their lowest. You can can offer a word of encouragement that can bring life to someone that might set them on a different path for their lives. Wise use of money instead of wasting money on foolishness, we can do what Jesus said and lay up treasures in heaven. We can give money toward eternal things and be rewarded for it. For all of eternity. Receiving Christ would be a choice with a permanent positive consequence. That's the starting point for you here tonight, if you haven't done that. It's where you you come before Christ and you say, I want your death to pay for my sins. He comes into your life forever. You get his healing power, his power for change in your life. The other point you should keep in mind is that God wants to creatively redeem even the worst choices you've ever made. I've seen this in a lot of people's lives. I've seen this in my life. Choices that seem so bad, how, how could this ever be undone? And God, you know, he, he doesn't necessarily take away what happened. He can't do that. But he'll find ways to take away the pain to show you what it's like to be someone who's experienced God's healing. He may use you to comfort other people who are feeling the depths of despair because of choices that they've made. 
And you're going to understand where they're at in a way that somebody couldn't who'd never been there. What you've got to do is you've got to lay down your pride and receive God's healing. And I've talked to people and they're like, after what I've done, God could never forgive me. Who would ever want to marry me? How could I ever serve God again? I gave up so much. Things I'd worked for years for, I threw it away in a single instant. And I've said, your problem here is not what you did. Your problem is your pride. For some of you, your problem is your pride. It's not what you've done. God can deal with that. It's you won't come to God for the free gift. Scripture says God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Will you admit, even your sin is not too bad for God to work with you, for God to work in your life. Will you come to God and experience his healing power? And then maybe you'll be able to say with the Apostle Paul, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I'm the worst of them all. A guy who had murdered people. A guy who didn't come to Christ until he was older than probably every single person here in this room. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. And that's the lesson from the life of Esau. Yeah, Lord, you say in your word that we should, we should trust you with our lives. That we should lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways submit to you. And you will make our paths clear. God, thank you that you've revealed so much of the unseen eternal world. Thanks that you've communicated that to us. I pray that we can learn to make choices according to your value system. Uh, emphasizing the things that you say are important and not making choices according to our own, you know, what we can see. I pray, Lord, that we would make the kind of choices that we're going to be looking back on a couple hundred years from now, really glad that we made. I pray, too, Lord, that there would be examples here in this room of people who made poor choices and then got to experience your grace, your healing, that they can comfort other people, that they can give insights into that. I pray, too, God, for anyone who's never made that choice to receive Christ, that they would make that permanent, positive choice tonight, God. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.